الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وصحابه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين All praise due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on the last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. The topic which was chosen for this evening's meeting, presentation and gathering is the core values of Islam. And the reason why this topic was chosen was because oftentimes Muslims miss out on the core key uh, goals which Islam has for its members, those who have accepted it. Here, brother, there's a seat here. Right here. By that, I mean to say that oftentimes people tend to get caught up in the external, uh, traditional, customary uh, practices which are part of Islam, no doubt. However, they are not in and of themselves the goals of Islam. We need to understand where the goals actually lie so that we are not focused on the wrong aspects of Islam. Of course, as we said, the basic pillars of Islam, whether it is prayer, salah, fasting, salm, zakah, hajj, these represent the core principles which every Muslim is supposed to do. But they are not in and of themselves goals. They are a means to take us to a particular goal. Because I'm sure you all understand that Allah doesn't need our worship. These are all acts of worship. But Allah did not prescribe these acts of worship out of a need. Normally when we set principles and requirements, obligations, they're out of needs that we have. But Allah, most great and glorious, is beyond all need. So these principles or rituals, customs, traditions, these are ways and means of getting us to the actual goal that we should really be seeking. Allah said, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ 
I didn't create the jinn and humankind except to worship me. So we know that worship is something required of us as human beings. However, if no one on the face of the earth worshipped Allah, it would not affect him in any way. And if everyone on the face of the earth worshipped him, it would not benefit him in any way. So all of this is there for us. What Prophet Muhammad summarized all of the various requirements of Islam in one word morality. He said, I was only sent to perfect for you the highest of moral character traits. It is about morality. We as Muslims don't have technology to offer the world today. There was a time in the past when we were the leaders of technology. People came to our centers of learning and learned from us, from Europe and other parts of the world. They came and learned. And we took from others. We were a means of bringing knowledge and skill from China, from India, from Africa, from Europe, bringing it together and repackaging it, advancing it and being the light at a time when Europe, for example, considered itself to be in the Dark Ages. In those Dark Ages, those were ages of light in the Muslim world. We never experienced the Dark Ages. <clears throat> but the point is that, as I said, what we have to offer the world is not technology. I, I don't have to convince you on that because we are going to America, we are going to England and other places to study their technology, what they have to offer, what they are giving back to us that they got from us. So, the greatness of Islam doesn't lie here. The greatness of Islam lies where the Prophet ﷺ put it, in morality. That Islam brought from the very beginning morality to humankind. The principles and guidelines for morality for humankind. We were all given a consciousness of right and wrong. Allah said, That every soul has a consciousness of corruption and righteousness. We were created with that. But Allah also gave us through the messengers who were sent guidelines which defined how these feelings or emotions or understandings that we have with regards to right and wrong, how it should be placed. We have the core uh, 
internal experience built into every cell in our bodies but when it is to be implemented in our relationships with each other and with the world we live in in our relationship with God with Allah without the guidelines then it's easy to stumble so Allah chose messengers from amongst us who would be given those guidelines and they would teach them in what we know as Islam so what it's saying is that the goal of these various pillars the five pillars of Islam are fundamentally moral goals it is to create a morally sound human being who would live a life which is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in everything that he or she does that morally sound human being in his relationship with God for example knows that it is morally correct to worship God alone and it's morally incorrect to worship others along with God or to put anyone between themselves and God they understand this is the morality with regards to our relationship with Allah with regards to our fellow human beings how we interact with them we know that stealing is wrong it is bad giving in charity is good these are the moral principles governing how we interact with each other and also even with the environment around us the world in which we live islam established the principles of you know protection of animals prophet muhammad said that we should never make birds our targets animals should not be the targets for human beings to enjoy killing other animals just for fun forbidden in islam 1400 years ago recently the world has finally caught up and said yeah, yeah we shouldn't kill after they wiped out different species and but from 1400 years ago it was stated by the prophet and of course this would have been in the teachings of the earlier prophets too it's not to say prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam invented this it's not his invention this is the law of allah we have been put over these creatures who may be bigger than us stronger than us faster than us allah has given us an ability to control them that elephant who if he stepped on us we're as flat as a pancake finished that's it in spite of that we can get that elephant to stand on two feet dance around do all kinds of things it's amazing this creature which is so so much stronger than us 
You know, if, if he was able to just think for a minute, you know, what is this guy telling me to do? Step on him, finish, you know, carry about my business. I mean, but Allah didn't give them that. He gave it to us that we are able to do that. So Allah submitted these creatures to us for our benefit. And we have a duty to, to use them in a way which is pleasing to Allah. Not to kill them for sport, not to abuse them, not to harm them. You know, even Prophet Muhammad told us, we should not even hit a dog in its face. We shouldn't hit anybody in their face, any human being, but even a dog, an animal, a donkey, or any of people like to hit in the face. But the Prophet forbade us even to hit an animal in its face. So, these moral principles were in place 1,400 years ago. And that is what is at the core of Islamic teachings. That these practices, rituals and rites which we have been given, they are to develop in us certain moral characteristics which would make each and every one of us a better human being. This is the purpose. Islam creates the best human beings, morally, with a standard of morality which doesn't change. So that what was bad yesterday doesn't become good today. Nor what was good yesterday become bad today. It is a standard. And Islam, what is unique about Islam is that it defends that standard. It is a fixed standard. Some people say, but times change. And many other religions, they move along with the times. They change with modern technology and inventions, modern thinking. But we don't have a problem with the modern inventions. We use microphones, no problem. We use air conditioners in our masjids, no problem. So no problem with the technology utilizing it to the benefit where it helps us to implement religious principles, no harm. But the problem comes when we are changing with the times now intellectually, uh, morally. This is where the problem comes. Where in the past, for example, homosexuality in the West, it was an evil, a disease. Psychiatrists used to treat people who were homosexual to try to correct them. They were considered sick. But from the 70s, from the 70s, mid, late 70s, that was turned upside down. Homosexuality was removed from the psychiatrist's Bible. No longer considered to be an illness. And it was replaced by another illness. 
This was called homophobia. <laughs> so the homophobes, those people who despise homosexuality, who consider it to be nasty, wrong, evil, they are the people now who are considered by psychiatrists to be sick. They are the ones who need to go to the psychiatrist and have their heads turned around so that they can accept and recognize and appreciate homosexuals. That kind of change, we don't need. Because that kind of change is going against the nature of human beings. When Allah made homosexuality evil, punishable in the Old Testament by death, when Allah made that commandment, it was ba based on His knowledge of human beings who He created. He knew that people were not born homosexuals, like homosexuals like to say today. Homosexuals, lesbians, transvestites, and they have a LBGT thing now. It's not just homosexuals, you have to accept the whole range, you know. He knows that people weren't created that way. Because it would not make sense that if Allah actually made a person, created a person a homosexual, and then declares that person to be evil and to be executed for his homosexuality, that doesn't make sense. That is unfair. And Allah is not unfair. Allah is not unfair. As He said in the Quran, Your Lord does not oppress anyone. He is not unfair to anyone. So the person who is a homosexual is a person who chooses to be a homosexual. That's the bottom line. And that's why there can be a punishment. Because it is a choice. So, what was evil, human society, from the time of Adam till our time, till thousands of years in the future, human beings will not change. They are human beings. Technology will change. But in terms of the basic makeup of the human being, there is no change. They will not change. And that's why the laws governing human society and morality, these laws which have been revealed by Allah, they don't need to change. So unlike the uh, churches in the West, for example, where now you have homosexual priests, administering to homosexual congregations as well as heterosexual congregations. That's considered a norm now. Only the Catholic Church remains, you know, opposing it. And it's just a matter of time before they will be overwhelmed and eventually have to accept it. Only in Islam, we don't accept it, we didn't accept it, and we'll never accept it. Of course, it's not to say, because somebody might say, oh, but in uh, San Francisco they have a homosexual masjid. They have one in Toronto also, and they have one in the UK. Yeah. We do have Muslims, you know, who are doing this. This is reality. Because countries allow that. 
they're free to do it. But Islam does not recognize it. It is still considered wrong. It doesn't mean that if you're a homosexual, you can't be a Muslim. No. Islam doesn't say that. Homosexuality is not that different in terms of the law and how the law deals with deviation from adultery. Punishment for adultery is death. Punishment for homosexuality is death if people are caught in the act. So this is not the issue. A person may commit a sin. There were Sahaba who were companions of the Prophet who were executed for adultery. <clears throat> Did that make them non-Muslims? No. They committed sin. In fact, they came to the Prophet and asked the Prophet to purify them by having the law applied to them. So, the point here is that the values, the moral principles of Islam are timeless. Allah has prescribed them based on human society and its need and they will not change. And this is what we as Muslims have to offer the world. A moral compass which is not turning according to how people feel. One which remains steady till the last day of this world. Now, that's the theory. In practice, we have to say, where are these moral principles in our pillars of Islam? See, normally when we teach the pillars of Islam, we teach them to our children, we learn them in terms of the technical issues that are concerned, that are involved. Salah, you have to have wudu, you pray salah this way or that way. What breaks wudu? What breaks salah? We learn all these technicalities. It's a requirement, five times a day, the timings, everything. But what are the moral principles behind salah? Most often this is not taught. For those of you that have been to classes on fiqh, of this basic fiqh, salah, zakah, hajj, I'm sure you'll agree with me that this area is not focused on. Maybe the teacher might mention a point or two, but this is not the focus. But if the Prophet Muhammad said that what he was sent with was morality, then surely that must be the most important core principle. This is the core value of Islam. So we need to rethink, we need to reanalyze, we need a new approach in our teaching of Islam.
wherein we focus on these issues while teaching people the technicalities that we also teach them the goals what are the core principles behind the ritual the rites the customs and the traditions so this evening what i'm going to share with you briefly is for you to reflect on and to look deeper into some of the principles behind the moral principles behind the pillars of Islam. So if we start with the first pillar of Islam, which is the Shahada time, the declaration, the two declarations of faith, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. We all know this. I bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship of Allah. And I bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. We know that. And we know we should say it uh, with knowledge. Because if you're just saying it as words, some people, a man wants to marry a Muslim woman. And the family says, no, a Muslim woman has to marry a Muslim man. So the man says, no problem, I'll become a Muslim. What do I need to do? You need to say, Ashhadu Allah. So he goes to the court, he says it. But he told his wife already, listen, his wife to me, I'm going to do this thing because I want to marry you. But don't expect me to be praying and fasting and all these other things that you guys do. I'm just doing this so I can marry you. You have to say, what is the value of his shahada time? Zero. No value. Nothing. Exactly. In the courts, of course, the courts have no choice. If somebody comes and declares their faith, they have to accept them on face value. But in the sight of Allah, he has not become a Muslim. It's just words, he said. So the goal are not the words. I mean, and of course, we say the words. And people will teach us how to say it. If we're not Arabic speaking, etc. We learn how to say it. But technically speaking, if you understood it and you even said it wrong, it's still good enough. As long as you've understood it, that's, that's the key. That you did understand what you were saying. And for it to be acceptable to Allah, of course, you have to be sincere about it. You should know what it means and have an idea that you plan to live in accordance with that principle. But then nobody tells you how to live. They just say, say it. So, what we need to look at here, because this topic of just the Shahada time could be a lecture and then when I come back in another two months, we can then go on to Salah, but I'm just going to try to get through us this evening quickly, uh, the basic principles, just for your own reflection. One of the principles that govern the Shahada Tan is that we have to say it 
with witnesses. Other people have to witness us saying it. It's not enough for you to decide personally in your home that I'm now a Muslim. I want to be a Muslim. Say to yourself, And then you just carry on. It's not enough. If you were in a place where you had no other choice, there were no more Muslims, you're the only, Muslim, the only person who decided to become a Muslim, that's another situation. You have nobody to say it to, nobody to witness it. Does that mean you can't become a Muslim? No, of course not. Of course you can become a Muslim. So as long as there are people around who can witness, then it is a requirement for you to say it with witnesses. That's the point. Islam is practical. It's flexible in the sense that if you are in a circumstance where you can't say it, your life is threatened. You've thought about it, and you're in a country where people are very, very, you know, negative towards Muslims, so much so that your parents saw you with a few books on Islam and say, what is, what's this? So I'm just reading, ah, get rid of it. If you become a Muslim, you're dead meat. Or you're a young person, if you become a Muslim, you're kicked out of the house. You're on your own. You're only 14 years old, 15 years old. You don't have the means to look after yourself. So okay, those circumstances, you make a declaration of faith to yourself. Parents don't know about it, you're a Muslim. But in circumstances, the general circumstance, the most common circumstances, where people are available, you can say it before other people, you are required to declare it publicly. We call that public declaration. It doesn't mean getting up here and declaring it before everybody, a whole group of people, no. But at least a couple of witnesses, it is said. Now, why does Islam insist on that? Why is that a principle in the Declaration of Faith? That you should say it to witnesses. On one hand, on an external level, on one hand, you become known as a Muslim. You become known as a Muslim. We know now that you are a Muslim. So if in your time of weakness, Shaitan comes to you and suggests to you that you may console yourself. You're depressed. You're having some difficult times. You console yourself as you did before Islam by going to the bar, taking a couple of shots of whiskey or whatever. You know, you feel better. And the Muslim sees you walking to the bar. They say, brother, are you okay? Can I help you? You're not going to find help there. It's going to make things worse. Right? I mean, Muslims will be looking out for you. They will try to help you because they know you're a Muslim. But if they don't know you're a Muslim, you've gone in by yourself. Nobody knew. And of course, that's the downward spiral. So there is practical benefit in there to be known as a Muslim. Also, the community can benefit from you. You may have some skills, some ability which the community needs. They can call on you. As you can call on them, they can call on you. 
Because Islam is a brotherhood, sisterhood, a community, brothers and sisters in faith. But on another level, if we look at the moral level, we have to say that the moral principle, which may be derived from the open declaration of faith. Anybody have an idea? what this principle would be? Huh? No? Nobody? If not towards Allah? The? If not, like you're gonna only worship Allah, is, is that uh, a moral point as well? Morality towards Allah? Yeah, but right here now, this open declaration, what comes out of it is what we call transparency. What you have inside, you have brought out. You're not the type of person who hides what you have. People see you for who you are. The Prophet had said the believer is not two-faced. He or she has one face when they're talking to one, and they have another face when they talk to somebody else. They're smiling in your face and stabbing you in your back. This is not the way of the believer. The believer is open, transparent. So this characteristic of transparency, this is part of honesty, of being known for who you are. You're not hiding things. You're not planning, plotting in secret, as the Allah said in the Quran, <laughs> There is no good in most of their secret meetings. Islam doesn't like secret meetings. Because when people plot and plan in secret, usually it is not for good. It may be for their good, their good as the group that is plotting and planning, but it's not good for the society. So Islam doesn't like this secret plotting and planning. And secret societies in general, most countries, they're opposed to them. We know that. The mafia, prosecutions, Masons, these groups, they're disliked by society in general. <clears throat> but in Islam, we are supposed to be open and honest. We advise people, we accept advice. Furthermore, because of the fact that we have accepted Islam and we know that Islam is the right way of life. We also, in our open declaration, would share that with others. Because if it was good for us, then surely it must be good for our parents, our brothers and sisters, our relatives. So we are motivated to share that which we have inside with others. So we have what you may call a missionary personality. We are on a mission in this world. We have been given this truth. And as the Prophet ﷺ had said, anni Convey whatever you have learned from me, even if it is only a single verse from the Quran. Share it. Salah. 
Tzola, its main moral message, the core moral principle is what? Hmm? Punctuality. Punctuality. Well, punctuality is taught in Salah because our Salah is at fixed times. To worship Allah alone, dhikr. Humbleness. Huh? Equality. Yeah, all of these are good principles inside of it, but the core. The, the, the most important one Allah told us in the Quran. He said, Aqimu salah li dhikri. Aqimu salah li dhikri. Establish the prayer in order to remember me. Dhikrullah. Consciousness of Allah. Taqwa. Same thing. Consciousness of Allah. That is the principle. To remember Allah. And this is important. Why? Because oftentimes non-Muslims will say to us, you know, you listen, you Muslims, you pray five times a day. That's nice. But it is mechanical. As if you all are like robots programmed. You know, you get up in the morning, midday, afternoon, sunset, night, Day after day after day after day. As for us, we pray to God, we worship God. When our hearts feel that connection, when our hearts are softened to God, this is when we worship. This is the real worship. And we might bow our heads and say, yeah, it's true. It sounds so much better than what we do. No, it isn't better. It sounds theoretically better. But in real life, what happens is that that person doesn't have that feeling today. So he doesn't worship a lot today. He doesn't have the feeling this week. So he doesn't worship a lot this week. This month. Six months, a year, years go by and he never or she never gets that feeling so they never worship God. When do they worship God? When calamity strikes. That's when everybody worships God. Calamity strikes. Tragedy in your life. So yes, he's told you. Oh God, yes. Help me God. You raise your hands. Everybody does. So that's when they do it. But what is the use of that, really? That kind of worship, I call the atheist's worship. The atheist's worship. The atheist who denies there is no God, he says there is no God. This is all a fabrication of your minds. We are descendants of monkeys, and if you look around in the zoos of the world, do you see any monkey praying? Do you see monkeys making mosques and synagogues and churches? No. So it must have been made up by you all. People made it up. There's no God. However, that same atheist, when he or she finds themselves in a circumstance 
where the end is before their eyes. They're sitting in that Boeing 727. And they look out the window and they see an engine fall off. And the plane starts to turn to go into that dive. A dive which you know there's no coming back. It's all over. That atheist doesn't sit there in his seat and say, tough luck. <laughs> no. He will throw his hands up or she will, oh God, oh God, oh God, screaming God even louder than the believers around them. That's the atheist worship. So we said that is not the real worship of God. The real worship of God is to be conscious of God. Vikrullah, to be conscious of God throughout our daily life, 24-7, throughout our days in this world. To be conscious of what is pleasing to God and what is not pleasing to God. So that between those times of worship, we are conscious of God. It will affect our behavior. So when somebody says to you, non-Muslim, you know, my, your, my boss, he's a Muslim. I see him going to the prayers, midday prayers, Dohor, goes for Asr, Maghrib, Dohor. He's really always there in the mosque. But he cheats us. He doesn't give us our pay on time. When he hired us in our home country, we signed a contract. When he got here, we changed, they changed the contract on us. So we were given the choice. Either you take the new contract or go back home on your own. We didn't have any choice. He lies to us all the time. So what is the value of his worship? And we have to say, yeah. What is the value of his worship? Because Allah also described the impact that worship should have on the individual when he said, Inna salah tanha anil fahshai wal munkar. Salah prevents evil speech and evil deeds. Our consciousness of Allah should prevent us from these evils. So if we don't have that consciousness of Allah, we're just going through the motions. Then, we are praying while not praying. We are going through the motions of what is called prayer, but we are not praying the prayer which was prescribed for us. This is the point. So Salah should develop that consciousness of, of Allah, which would make us better people in how we communicate with others around us. And how we deal with them financially and otherwise. So we only speak what is good. We don't engage in gossip. This is one of the problems that we have in society today, isn't it? When we sit down and talk with our workmates, what do we talk about? Other people. You know so and so? They did this or they did that. I don't like them because of this and that and whatever. Just talking about other people. Much of the time spent. Women are 
known for this, but it's not just women. Men too. Yeah. Although we usually point the figure, yeah, the women they're always gossiping. But the men too. Different version. Right? It's just a different version, different way. But this we spend most of our time, our conversations, in gossip. Slander. Talking about people, backbiting, talking about people behind their backs. What they have, which we feel they don't deserve. We're the ones who should have it, etc. So the Salah should prevent us from that kind of conversation. Useless. Detrimental to ourselves and to others. Zakah, of course, is obvious. It teaches generosity. Generosity which all societies praise. People recognize the good in it. Regardless of who. Bill Gates, his millions, billions, given away. Walid bin Talal gave away. Others, people respect that. They say, wonderful thing. Most people aren't able to do that. They have wealth, can't let it go. Even though they can't spend it. Even though they don't have the means to spend it. Because there is this nature that we have also of greed. Not wanting to let go. The more we have, the more we want. So zakah is to tell, is to tell us and to make us be generous. To help those who are needed in our societies and to also decrease our level of greed, the, the greed which is in our hearts, to keep it down. It is also to develop compassion for others. To recognize the need. This is why when you have to give zakah, if in a society uh, you're able to look for the people who are needy and give them yourself, it's better. Yes, we have societies that will do it for you. Just give them money, they give you a slip and it says zakah has been done. But the better way is to find those who are needy and help them. It has more meaning has more of an impact when we see people in dire need. So zakah is to develop generosity and compassion. Fasting. Ramadan, fasting. Primarily, Ramadan is supposed to develop in us a sense of self-control. A sense of self-control control. Now, what we are doing currently, we call it fasting, but in reality, it's feasting. We feast Ramadan. Instead of fasting Ramadan, we're feasting Ramadan. That's why, before every Ramadan here, Doctors' recommendations before we start Ramadan, please don't overeat. Biggest problem they have during Ramadan is people coming in with ailments from overeating. Non-Muslims are looking at us and say, what? How is that? People are fasting 30 days and they're having ailments from overeating? That's kind of contradictory. 
And we will proudly tell them, we gain weight in Ramadan. Fasting is easy. We gain weight in Ramadan. Why? But is that the fast which was prescribed in Islam? One in which you will gain weight? Women spend the whole of Ramadan just in the, in the kitchen. You have foods which are served in all the communities around the world. I've been to you know, so many different parts of the world. And every community has special foods for Ramadan. It's only eaten in Ramadan. Right? Special foods. What's that saying? What is that actually saying? That our focus is on food. It's not about fasting, it's about the food. So, it's not surprising that the goals of fasting are lost. Lost. We start the fast and end the fast the same way we started it. The fast is supposed to be improving us, making us better. Year after year we're being, you know, developed. It's a period of development. But we don't develop. This Ramadan, we will start just the way we started last Ramadan. Same way, same space, same space. So Ramadan has no impact on us. Self-control has no meaning. Oh yes, we don't fast between the dawn and the sunset. But before the dawn, we have eaten three-course meals, you know, our biryani and our, you know, chicken this and fish that and till we're completely full we can't eat anymore and then we go into the fast we spend the next how many hours just digesting the food our bodies are just slowly breaking it down and absorbing it till half an hour before Sunset, finally it's finished. <laughs> Time to eat. <laughs> Here comes iftar. <laughs> and what is iftar? We have all these foods lined up again. You know? And when we when the Adhan goes, we just dive in there and we're eating till we can't eat anymore. So what happened to control? Self-control. It's lost. There is no self-control there, really. We've turned the night into the day. The morning meal in English is called what? Breakfast. Breakfast is from break fast. We were fasting during the night, we're sleeping, we can't eat. And you break the fast in the morning. It's called breakfast. So, what we did before Ramadan at night, we just put it in the day. And we're doing breakfast at iftar. Right? We didn't eat during that period, but we ate so much before, we ate so much after, it has no impact on us. We don't feel hungry. But actually the fast, we're supposed to feel hungry. We are supposed to feel hungry. If we're not feeling hungry in the fast, then we're not really fasting. Because if, according to the Sunnah, Prophet Muhammad we all know he used to break fast with what? Three dates and water. Do you know he also started the fast with that too? Yes. It was Sunnah to begin with three dates and water also. 
Now you try a fast with three dates and water for Suhoor. For sure, you're going to feel hungry in that day. That day you will feel the pangs of hunger maybe for the first time in your life. Hey, I'm feeling that. Where did that come from? Maybe I better go see a doctor. No, no. That is the hunger pang. The pangs of hunger which a quarter of the world feels every day. Not because they chose to fast, but because there's no food. That is supposed to remind us of those people. Cause us to think about them and want to be sharing and generous. To break the fast at the end of Ramadan with Eid al-Fitr. Feeding. We have feed the needy. That's what we are being driven to do. To develop this sense of care, concern, compassion for others. Control for ourselves. And Hajj, time is running out, Hajj is patience. Critical patience. We are impatient by nature. Human beings are created impatient. We have a, an impatient nature about us. But patience is the real virtue that we need. Because patience is what stops us from doing what is displeasing to Allah. Impatience, haste. The Prophet ﷺ had said, Al-ajla min shaytan Haste, impatience is from Satan. Satanic. It's an evil to be avoided. So, patience is the most important principle in Hajj because we are put into circumstances where it is easy for us to be impatient. No matter what kind of Hajj you do, and the Hajjs we have different levels, right? We have one star Hajjs, we have no star Hajjs also, and then we have five star Hajjs. But even the five star Hajj, he must or she must enter into the crowds of Tawaf. You can't find a time when the place is empty. So you're going to get into the crowd. So somebody is going to elbow you. They're going to step on your foot. All kinds of things are going to happen to you in spite of what you've paid. And now how do you respond? If your response is they elbowed you, so you them back. They step on your foot, so you stomp on their foot. This is your, this is your attitude. You have no hajj. You destroyed your hajj because hajj is really about patience. That we suffer and are purified, knowing, as the Prophet ﷺ said, the believer, whenever he or she suffers any harm. Even a thorn sticking in the foot. It purifies them of sin. It becomes purification. So whatever happens, even if the person did what they did deliberately, it doesn't matter. You're patient with it, your sins are purified. You're purifying yourself of sin. And it's towards that that you can end up returning home if your hajj is accepted 
pure from sin, as the Prophet said, like a newborn child. That's not going to happen if you are reacting. Where they're throwing the stone, somebody throws and hits you in the head with a stone, so you pick it up and you try to throw back at them. You have to believe it wasn't deliberate. You have to control yourself in those all those circumstances. So, patience. As the Prophet had said, the true believer, his and her affair is amazing. And it's only in the case of the true believers. When difficult times come to them, they are patient. And Allah rewards them for it. When good times come, they're thankful, and Allah rewards them for it. That patience is the challenge. And that is Hajj. As well as also the moral, the universal moral, that we have an attitude towards human beings, all human beings, as being our brothers and sisters. This is inhumanity. There are no races. People talk about races. There are no races. We're just human beings. There's just one race, the race of human beings. We're all children of Adam. The Hajj reminds us of that because we come from countries where maybe we've never seen people looking like the people that we're seeing there. Hajj brings us together for us to experience that, to know all human beings are one. Islam is one. Allah is one. So those are just an introduction to the moral principles, the core values of Islam. And we need to rethink the pillars of Iman in a similar light. And in fact, all of the various other requirements that are put on us whether it's hijab for women, what are the moral principles behind it? It's not just because Islam says you must cover, you must cover. There are reasons. And there is, it's not just for the others, it's for ourselves. What are the moral principles behind it? And seek those principles. So, inshallah, I hope that this brief introduction to the core values of Islam has fallen on open ears. Everybody's eyes seem to be open. I hope your ears were also open. And inshallah that you would implement this in your lives, in passing on Islam to your children, that you help them to understand these principles let them know Islam from the moral principles to the degree that we can, of course. You're dealing with a three-year-old child, no point talking about moral principles here. We can't understand it at that stage. But, you know, again, once they reach the age, teach your children salah by the time they're seven. Teaching them salah means teaching them salah with the moral principles. Not just that they go through the movements, but that they live those moral principles. What they say and what they do. Words of remembrance, being conscious of Allah, we try to give them that by the time they're seven. 
That's what the Prophet ﷺ was speaking about. Barakallah I will stop here, inshallah. Uh, our normal practice is to do.